0: You are now listening to the Here for the Truth Podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Here for the Truth podcast. I'm Joel Rafidi. I've got my co-host Eurosmos in the house as always. And today we have Jason Basler from the Free Thought Project joining us, where you dive deep into libertarianism, individualism, the dangers of CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. We also tap, on to, uh, tap into peaceful parenting and what libertarianism looks like within our own homes as well. So beautiful conversation here. Jason's an awesome guy. I really hope you guys enjoy it. Right before we get into that, we have launched round four of our transformational group coaching program, Rise Above The Herd. This is our fourth run. You can head to riseabovetheherd.co to learn more and apply. But basically... This is for you if you're ready to get on with living your most authentic, free life. Um, If you're, I guess, tired of living short of your potential and you want to really develop the foundational principles and the authentic self-esteem necessary to truly pursue your own values and create value in a real and profound way so you're no longer dependent on these systems. Because you know we're all human beings here. We all have short lives. And I think every single one of you guys listening and every single person on the planet is actually worthy of living the life that they truly um, are here for. So check it out at riseabovetheherd.co. We've been having incredible conversations in our private membership platform, Friends of the Truth as well. We had David Whitehead uh, last week, um, which was just freaking mind-blowing. So we'll put both those links in the brief here. Without any further ado, thank you so much for your support. All our episodes are at hereforthetruth.com. If you get the chance, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Please rate us on Spotify. It really helps a platform like ours a lot. Much love to you all. Peace. All right, everybody. Welcome to Episode 93 of the Here for the Truth podcast. We have Jason Bassler in the house. He's the co-founder of the Free Thought Project. You've probably seen his pages on social media, and he's been featured in such publications as Reason. InfoWars, RT, Rolling Stone, and The Tom Woods Show. Basler is also the founder of Police the Police and was called one of the most extensive recorders of law enforcement misbehavior in America by Rolling Stone Magazine in 2018. Jason, thank you so much for being here for The Truth, bro.
1: Thank you guys for having me on. I uh, really appreciate it. You guys have a great podcast here. I've uh, been enjoying the videos, certainly. Great aesthetics aesthetics with the videos and uh, great guests as well. In fact, I just had one of your previous podcast guests, Gavin Nassimento, on an interview this morning. So
2: <laughs> he's a legend, <laughs> man. He's great. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He is so full of information and knowledge, man. It makes my head spin.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, re- it's ridiculous the way that that guy's able to store and recall knowledge the way he does. Um, Mind blowing for sure. Yeah. Um, Jason, what we're really interested in to get this one started is really how you got started. How did you find yourself in this world of truth-seeking and then putting this information out there in the way that you have?
1: Sure. So I've been an activist, anarchist and abolitionist for 10 years now. And it's a bit of a, a story, I'll try to keep it brief, but it all mostly started with the Ron Paul revolution. And I kind of caught wind of that during the Occupy Wall Street protests back in 2011. Um, I was seeing things during that protest that I had never really seen before, including police brutality. Uh, I saw a whole uprising and movement of people that were seemingly my peers um, talking out about the financial system, about the banking system, and the general corruption within... Society and the government, and I had done some protests and activism throughout my teen years. I had kind of uh, stepped away from all that to get into the music industry for a while. And right around 2011, it was just this perfect harmony of technology and attention. I had just bought an iPad; they're brand new. They just hit the scene, and uh, I just started watching more YouTube. I had more; it was more accessible. I had you know the iPad with me wherever I was going, and. I was starting to see, you know, all these protests that were happening globally. It wasn't just in New York that, where the Occupy Wall Street movement started, but it was globally. And it really motivated me and it made me realize that, hey, we're in the age of information now. Like the internet is here. It's, you know, producing all this information. It's producing counterculture to a certain extent. And I need to understand what's going on. Prior to that, I was kind of just a, a Bay Area liberal normie. I didn't really know much about my own politics, my own ideology. And basically, what I knew was just Republicans were bad. <laughs> you know, We had the, the years with George W. Bush there, the Iraq War. Um, and that was basically coming off the heels straight into my activism, the years of my activism starting. So I figured out that I had the power of information in my fingertips. I wanted to do everything that I could to empower myself with knowledge and information and education. And yeah, self-educate myself uh, with all the tools that were literally in my pocket for free. So uh, I took about a year or two to do that, and really tried to soak in as much information as I could. I was a sponge. I was, you know, reading a ton. I was watching a lot of YouTube videos. And don't forget, this was kind of during the golden age of the internet. So there wasn't as much censorship. There was a lot of really powerful, hard-hitting, eye-opening information that was circulating, particularly on YouTube. So I empowered myself. I decided to take in all that knowledge. And once I realized that I had this knowledge, I realized there was a responsibility on my behalf to also share this knowledge with the people that surrounded me and just the general public at large. So during that time, I was doing some uh, protests. I was doing some activism for Ron Paul. He was It was 2012. So it was around his election. I was doing banner hangs. I was Going to anti-war protests, I was doing all these things, but I kind of realized I had this epiphany that I could reach a lot more people online than I could ever reach standing on the side of a street with a sign. So at that point, I just decided to really start focusing all my energy, my time, and my attention to building Facebook pages. I even created a couple of Tumblr accounts. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. If you can. <laughs> Tumblr, it's kind of funny now. But that was basically the catalyst. I, I saw some success right there uh, when I first started 2012-2013. And I happened to um, come into uh, a place where I met this, this writer named Matt Agris, who's the co-founder of the Free Thought Project. He's also the editor in chief. And we decided, hey, like what we're doing now, we're working for another website, uh, It was kind of new agey, wasn't really quite our thing. But uh, because we we're, I was good at social media, he was a good writer, we both got recruited to the site. So we kind of put our heads together and we're like, hey, this isn't really our cup of tea. We want to do more involved with police accountability, more involved with government accountability. So in 2013, we created the Free Thought Project. Um, and it immediately took off. It blew up within the first year. We were, with, we were within the top 500 websites in the country, if you could believe wow. that. Uh, It it was, yeah. It really was uh, an amazing experience. And our Facebook uh, profile and our online presence started to grow rapidly. So um, that all pretty much escalated and hit a crescendo by 2018 uh, when Facebook and Twitter took down all of our accounts, all of our pages on the same day, resulting in nearly a loss of uh, 6 million fans altogether. Um, which I know sounds kind of crazy because uh, it's hard to accumulate fans like that these days. But back in what I you know just mentioned was kind of the internet golden age, it was a little bit easier. So pretty much since then, for the past four years, we've just been trying to uh, rebuild, stay afloat. And there's been several waves since then of different kind of freedom-minded movements that have hit the scene, hit the the Liberty movement. And so we've had a bit of competition. It's been kind of a rocky road. Getting back on our feet here, but we're dedicated and um, we're going to continue to forage on.
0: Awesome, man. I love your sincerity um, and I love your commitment to to the truth. I want to ask you, like, in your experience, it seems like, the, like there's been a drastic shift in the political landscape, um, particularly even pre 2016. It feels like most of us were even standing on the left at, w- at one point in time, um, you know, with, with all those, those protests that were taking place and stuff. Um, What's your perspective on all of that and how's your own political perspective shift in that regard um, in regards to the foundation of truth, freedom and liberty at the same time?
1: Sure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I didn't personally see a big shift until 2016 during the Trump years and then 2020 during the COVID 1984 scandemic, you know, so those were kind of the two big shifts that I saw within at least the liberty movement. Um, as far as my own personal ideology, principles, values, that hasn't really changed much. And I think when you do have a firm grasp on the libertarian values and principles, it's kind of hard to stray away from them. You know, if you're going to be intellectually, logically consistent and morally consistent, I too, I should add, you can't really, I don't know. I, I did witness it. Don't get me wrong. I did see quite a few quote libertarians. Move over to the MAGA camp. You know, they jumped on the Trump train and the Trump train, and it was profitable for them in the short term. And maybe still they've already, you know, they were able to grow their audience and kind of catch that wave. But from my experience, there's a lot of people who have shifted over to that right leaning um, kind of MAGA camp. And it was almost like it was a financial. Incentive and a way to grow their audiences, and Mm -hmm. you can kind of walk that that fine line of being like on the right while still like kind of upholding libertarian principles. But I think it also turned away and turned off a a large portion of people who were principled, voluntarist, anarchist, libertarians, and it almost kind of created a divide within the liberty community. Now, don't get me wrong; we're all still kind of under this liberty banner, so there is some cohesion there and, and community, but at the same time, it, it feels like, um, that was a big, uh, I don't know. It, it, it took the, the movement in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And I'll also speak on the 2020, the COVID. I mean, that was a wonderful, wonderful awakening. And in fact, I think that was the silver lining that we could kind of witness from that whole experience is that they pushed so far that a lot of people that were even normies prior to COVID realized, Hey, like this doesn't sit right with me. This seems like this is tyrannical. Uh, it's something that shouldn't be happening in our country. And I'm watching it happening and happening in our country. And it kind of lit a fuse, if you will. Uh, and it made a lot of people realize that they weren't being told the truth. And there was a lot more information out there. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think there has been some change. I think for the anarchist voluntarist movement, there really hasn't been. It's been a, a straight, you know, line, and we're still pretty much preaching the same uh, things that we've always been.
2: Yeah. Do you think? Do you think the people that kind of strayed into the the more MAGA camp? That, yeah, maybe on paper they were calling themselves libertarian, but psychologically speaking, they got sucked into a whole other form of groupthink and herd mentality to be part of some larger group and to have a face and to have a look, I'm part of something and to make friends, you know, because to. To to be an individual, especially when you think about this liberty movement, it's it can be a lonely road because you're not in a majority. Yeah. You know, you're yeah. you're the minority. And so I think it was kind of an opportunity for people to kind of like go rah, 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 be part of something bigger and and go to protests and and wear the wear the clothing and the hats. And um, it's just a, another form of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You hit the nail on the head and that's one thing I actually say pretty often is that you, you might hear the word anarchism or anarchists from the mainstream corporate establishment media, but you're never gonna hear the word voluntarist, right? That's one thing they'll will never say. They don't want to point any attention to it. So yeah, it's you're exactly benevolent. Right. It's too What's benevolent. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. too benevolent. Yeah, yeah. It's benevolent. Yeah, absolutely. And they don't want to plant that seed into people's head. Yeah. So yeah, I I would agree completely. And there was a lot of momentum during those first couple of years uh, with the Trump movement. And that's exactly it. People want to feel like they have that political base, that tribe that they could uh, circle around and get patted on the back when they put out a funny meme that supports Trump or whatever. I mean, that's exactly it. And it is this group mentality. And I would say a lot of these people weren't necessarily principled anarchist libertarians in the first place. And that's why they were so easily swayed over to the Trump train.
0: Yeah, yeah definitely makes sense man i think also another factor might be the fact that you know they haven't really grasped what what libertarianism is or what voluntarism is so they're still kind of sure. psychologically just looking for the right thing what's the right what's the you know i want confirmation that i'm following the right path so to speak but you're yeah. right once someone finds that core foundation of freedom and voluntarism then like you know there's no point trying to figure out what left's doing what right's doing it's like you just have that inner constitution of knowing of you know what the right way
2: and the right principles yeah. are. I just want to kind of jump in real quick. I know we've chatted about this a little bit on this show, but just for some maybe some newer listeners or people that aren't 100% clear mm. on what libertarianism is or what voluntarism is like from a definition standpoint. Um can you can you talk about those two terms a little bit?
1: Sure. So, I would say the libertarian side of things, there's probably three core principles. I think the foundation for libertarianism for most libertarians is the non-aggression principle. Now, that is uh, the core tenet for libertarianism. We don't believe in the initiation of violence, um, regardless of the the circumstances. Now, when you apply that to a large scale, uh, that's something that becomes controversial. Now, we all have uphold you know, the, the golden rule in our lives, and that's something we were taught as a, at you know, a very young age. But when you start to apply that to the collective and to the political sphere, it becomes much more controversial. So we as libertarians don't believe in the initiation of aggression or violence. We do believe in the right to self-defense, though. So if somebody initiates violence against you, you, know, you have the moral right to uh, defend yourself. Uh, the second would probably be self-ownership. And this ties in directly with voluntarism. Voluntarism is a a belief, an ideology that you own yourself, that nobody has the moral or legal right to claim ownership over you, your body, your production. And that is ultimately, in my opinion, the path forward now, we've gotten caught up in you know this uh, statist mindset where government has this right to initiate violence, to enforce laws, to enforce taxation. Um, so self-ownership basically puts waste to all that. It says, no, I own myself. Nobody has a legal right to you know tell me what I can and can't do with my own body uh, with my property as long as I'm not hurting anyone else. So I, I think that's a very important one. And then, of course, the last is just property rights, private property rights. And that is foundational in itself. Um, we can't ever be productive or prosperous if we don't have a foundation of property rights. Um, now the left you know, has a problem with that. They say that there's personal property. Property rights uh, doesn't actually exist. Um, you know, we could go back and forth all day about that, but uh, at the end of the day, if you produce something, if you produce a good or a service, or if you homestead a property, uh, you you bring value to it by building a fence or something. By definition, that is your property. You've homesteaded it. You've uh, you've changed its very nature into something that's more productive. Therefore, you have a higher claim or higher right to that property than any other individual. So those are basically the three core tenets of libertarianism. Uh, voluntarism is very similar. It's more or less the the cousin of anarchism. Uh, it's a little less controversial, as you guys probably know, you know, that yeah. the word anarchist has a lot of loaded negative connotation to it. So a lot of people who are anarchists call themselves voluntarists just so people could actually take a second to, to soak in the idea without, uh, you know, having this uh, knee jerk reaction, thinking that anarchist is just uh, anarchism is just you know inherently violent. Um, and so I think that's important to state. Uh, voluntarism basically means that you know, we believe in voluntary interactions and transactions in society. So it's the difference between uh, theft and trade. It's the difference between uh, rape and lovemaking. So as you could tell, there's, there's a significant difference there. And unfortunately, we as a society have been so acclimated to institutions over the years that claim authority over us that we don't really think twice about it in this day and age about well, do I actually voluntarily consent to the authority of the government? Have I actually ever signed a legitimate contract with the government to claim authority over me or to pr- provide these, you know, quote products and services for me? Now, that kind of gets into a whole different discussion as far as um, the social contract, which libertarian anarchists kind of laugh about because it's this invisible entity. You no, know, I've never signed it. I don't think you guys have either. Uh, if you could find this social contract for me and send it over to me, I, I'd be great. You know, I'd, I'd gratefully, I'd be grateful for that. But otherwise, like, uh, it just doesn't exist. So it's kind of this mental construct that's been placed into our heads uh, to give the ruling class and the establishment a claimed authority over our lives.
0: Yeah, we just assume it as a given. You know, It's just, yeah. just yeah. always been there. So you know, nothing else really is worth thinking about. You know, what's the point of fighting? What's already there. And most people don't give it a second thought. I really like what you said about um, property rights, and that was a big realization for me. Really, because property rights is a foundation of all freedom. Ultimately, from my perspective, that's something I, I learned from Iron Rand as well. Is that no other rights are possible, even in like a hunter gatherer situation. If I was to go and you know um, find my own food or whatnot, if I don't have that rights to my, to that property, then I've got no right over my life. I've got no right over um, producing for my own survival. You know. So that's really so important for people to understand that literally nothing else is possible unless you have the right to your own the fruits of your own production.
1: Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the the difference, this the significant difference between uh capitalism and socialism. You know, it's the individualism versus the collectivism mentality. Yep. And uh this collective mentality, we saw it rear its ugly head during the COVID years, you know, and I guess we're not quite out of that yet. So we can't quite point to the COVID years, but we're still barely in it. But
0: um, hopefully on the tail
1: end. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, even Gavin Newsom just, you know, said that the state of emergency is is over now and he's going to rescind that in February 2023. Mm -hmm. But I think two and a half
2: half years later, but anyways, continue.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's uh, what we saw during the COVID years was this mentality that, hey, you need to get your COVID vaccine for me. And you have to uh, appease to this greater good. You have to be a team player. And it it kind of tramples on our individual rights, right? And it it definitely goes back to uh, private property because at the end of the day, like the highest claim of personal or private property Is our body is ourselves. You know, it's like I was saying with self ownership. So uh, the collective can't have that. I'm sorry. Like that's not something I'm willing to give up. And many freedom minded people like yourselves aren't willing to give up as well. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all for uh, trying to contribute to society voluntarily on my own terms. You know, I'm not hurting anybody else. I'm not trying to initiate violence, but I'm not going to be forced into doing something like that. So private property, yeah, does essentially go all the way down to actual self the human body
2: yeah. yeah this is where the whole argument uh, comes into play is because you have people on one side that think that you are by, by making an individual choice they're putting them in danger because they don't understand biology they don't understand health but that's a whole other conversation you know i think that's where it gets tricky and then even uh with the abortion issue too you know like um i mean i I tend to be someone that like my body my body so you 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 can do what you when you want to do with your body but then you have people who have certain religious beliefs that think you are harming another now we're not we don't need to get into all that but it's just interesting that th- these are the things these little nuances that people throw into based on their l- religious upbringing based on based on their belief system that go no you are hurting me or you are hurting another person so there's a little nuance there so if you want you can comment on it but
1: well I feel like this all Contributes to this bigger picture and this bigger template that we saw being rolled out during the War of Terror, and we actually just had a uh, podcast with James Corbett, who did a wonderful uh, three-part documentary, five-hour all about uh, the hidden, or excuse me, the secret history of Al, Al- Qaeda. And we had a conversation with him, and that was kind of his main conclusion was that I wanted to show how the War on Terror has. Ev- ultimately always been about a war on you. And when I say that, I mean that because it's this cl- collectivist mentality that is kind of what hinges on the template actually being successful and kind of the backbone of it. So another thing that is concerning to me and is actually what I just talked to Gavin Nassiamento about this morning and Carrie Wedler. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with her. mm mm-hmm. But is the CBDCs. And I feel like this is going to be something that gets rolled out under the same type of mentality, which is, it's going to be...
0: Just for those listening, can you let them know what CBDCs are?
1: Sure, yeah. The CBDC is a centralized bank digital currency. So it's, I guess, similar to cryptocurrencies, except for cryptocurrencies, for the most part, are decentralized. Uh, This is going to be something that is centralized rolled out by central banks and the corresponding governments for each country that want to participate. It's actually live already in a few countries. Uh, I, I believe Gavin mentioned a few in Africa. I can't remember which ones, but the more impoverished countries, which we're having a hard enough time you know, making ends meet as is. We're already trying to utilize some cryptos, but now the governments are kind of swooping in and offering you know, these digital uh, currencies through central banks. So uh, we already saw, you know, with PayPal just recently, a couple of weeks ago, which is basically a centralized currency uh, exchange. They claimed they were, they were going to fine people twenty five hundred dollars for misinformation if they happened to post misinformation. Now they got a lot of backlash for that, rightfully so, and now they're kind of. Uh, you know, turning around a little bit. And they're even actually offering $15 vouchers for people who are trying to, uh, you know, cancel their accounts or whatever. (laughs) So they're kind of backtracking, uh, you know, fast. But, um, and then of course, during the COVID protests, the COVID lockdown protests in Canada, in Ottawa, uh, we saw the Canadian government actually freeze accounts. Mm -hmm. So this is, these are both kind of examples of how centralized currencies can be problematic And that's not something that we really want to get ourselves into. Um, And another reason I I kind of feel like these are kind of right now really starting to be promoted and are something that the establishment really wants to get a a stronghold on the narrative about. I made a post warning about CBDCs, actually, it was a meme uh, a couple months ago. And I just recently looked back on it and I got hit with two different fact checks about it. Of course, I uh, appealed to fact checks. They changed the rating from false to missing context, but in my mind, that's a huge red flag because they're already starting to target the narrative about CBDCs. Mm. They want to control that narrative, and even I was just looking. You know, I mentioned this morning that I was uh, on a conversation with uh, Gavin Nascimento, so I was doing a little research. I even saw this morning that the, uh, the there was an article by Forbes that said why you should be excited for a central bank digital currency. So. Mm. They're putting this out there. They're really starting to plant the seeds. And uh, it's concerning. It's concerning to me. They're starting to also work on some of the, the white papers behind the scenes. Um, I know that the US Treasury, I think it was in July, published that they were looking into CBDC. So this is definitely happening. And it's also going to be tied into the digital ID, which is uh, going to be more or less a digital wallet connected to the CBDC. And A lot of people are speculating that the digital ID is going to eventually morph and evolve into a social credit score. And as you guys know, with like China, that whole thing, like that's not the way we want to go. It's not the way freedom minded people want to go. And it's ultimately more control over our lives. So, you know, there's already how many control mechanisms, you know, over our lives right now? I mean, there's the monetary policy that's being dictated by central banks, there's law enforcement, there's the justice system, public education, healthcare, uh, defense, banking. Right. I mean, all these things. I can't personally say that I look at all those institutions and feel like they bring great value to my life. In fact, it's quite the opposite. They're in a way kind of controlling my life, allowing me you know, access to certain things. Uh, so there is restriction there. And I don't believe that this is going to be something that's going to benefit the people. Now, they're already rolling it out saying it's going to be a human... It, this is going to be a human right, the digital ID. They're already kind of touting that and trying to get it in people's head that everybody's going to need a digital ID. This is how we're all going to be on a level playing field on the internet. And this is how we're all going to have, you know, be able to uh, accumulate the CBDC. So I don't know. I feel like this is going to be a new woke collectivist Mm-hmm. Type of uh, paradigm that they push on us under that that auspices, you know, those under that kind of guise. So um, again, this this whole collectivist mentality, like we have to shoot it down every opportunity we get.
0: Yeah, um, just to add to that, um, I don't know if it's happening um, in the US, but concurrently in Australia, in the mainstream news, there's constantly um, warnings of cyber hacks, cyber attacks. One of our biggest telcos, Optus, had a big data breach which apparently affected all these other healthcare companies, etc. So we're constantly getting now um, emails and repetition about um, cybersecurity, which I think it definitely works concurrently with everything that you've said.
1: Absolutely. In fact, I mean, that's kind of what the whole vaccine passport, the contract contact tracing, I believe, was a push to start getting us acclimated to these types of uh, these types of programs. So I mean, to me, that's the writings on the wall, you know, and they also said the same thing about uh, using cash during the pandemic, right? They didn't yeah. want us to spread germs, you know, remember that? Well, that also, yeah, <laughs> that also use is very useful for the establishment for us to start getting into this mentality about using digital currency, uh, not using cash, you know, they've, they've demonized cash. So um yeah, Yeah. the health passports, all these things are all kind of getting us acclimated towards yeah. this, new, this new world that they're trying to push on us.
2: Yeah, like I, I grew up in the restaurant business. You know, I, I grew up in the diner business in New Jersey. And, you know, seeing over the last few years, restaurants like go to the QR code, like that's such yeah. a pet peeve of mine, man. Like, I want to touch a menu. I want to hold it. Sure. I want to like look through. I don't want to take my phone out and try to, okay, get Next the screen thing. on and then go to a website. It's just... It's, it's oh man so again like, like that's another another level you know and i felt like it blew up over the last couple of years obviously because it's like god forbid you touch anyone or get close to anyone yeah. you touch a menu and then that menu gets handed to someone else and they come down with the black death oh sure they even got
1: gen z on it too now you know they're calling us anybody who has that who shares that mentality with you that we're just boomers now you know so, oh my goodness <laughs> i mean that's my how gosh. they, they weaponize <laughs> these things you know but i'm right there with you i don't want to be on my phone if i'm out at dinner, like, yeah. I work all day on my computer and exactly. looking at my phone. Like, I want some time with the people who I'm there with. You know, I'm not trying to be on my phone. So I get it, man, completely. Yeah.
0: Time moves quickly if we, we're the boomers now. Let me tell you that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, I guess we've, you know, we put out a little bit of a warning here. What are some kind of solutions to counter this for the individual that's aware of potentially what's coming? And, you know, how can they, I guess, Facilitate the best result for themselves moving forward as the terrain changes?
1: Well, I, I really feel like we need to be all hands on deck warning about this. I don't really feel like there's enough people talking about it right now, you know, and yep. it's uh, it's an acronym, you know, a lot of people don't. I mean, even people within, I, I was mentioning it to a few people who I consider colleagues recently, and they're like, what's a CBDC? So, they're doing a good job rolling this out kind of quietly behind the scenes. As I said, there are some articles coming out just to kind of plant the seeds for the people who are paying attention. Yeah. Uh, But I think ultimately, yeah, we just need to create that awareness and that's what has always thwarted, you know, the, the ruling classes plans. And the more we could do that, you know, more we could scream from the rooftops, the better we're going to be prepared to combat something like this. I would say also try to get into the cryptocurrency world if you're not already. um, I'm not an expert by any means, but I have some crypto, you know, various coins, and it's a little turbulent. Sure, mm-hmm. absolutely. But if you can actually start to use, and I know that it seems like a foreign concept now because crypto has almost been turned into like the stock markets in a sense, you know, but yeah. the original application was for daily usage. And now I know there's gas fees and there's been a lot of problems with the actual rollout of you know utilizing it, but at the same time, I think that there are still ways we can continue to use crypto. and the more we could pull away from their levers of control, the better. you know So um, that's just you know one example.:
2: Yeah I think people just aren't able to see ten steps ahead. And they are just focused on this level of convenience. It's like over the last however many decades, everything's been moving more towards like what's quicker, what's faster, what's more convenient. And you'll see people like, well, Klaus Schwab uh, at uh, at, like, in Davos talking about like, you know, we're going to be having injectables technology. And there are people that are excited that they get to like roll up to like an Amazon supermarket and like wave their hand and pay for shit. You know, it's just like, it's like, oh, wow, it's too much effort to pull out my wallet to take out some cash to give this it's like everything is like what's more and more convenient what's easiest thing and we live in this time where it's like, if if your Wi Fi doesn't work for for like three minutes, it's like the end of the world. You know, I I catch myself sometimes I'm so used to things that I'm comfortable with and I'm like, shaking my phone like why isn't the Wi Fi working I need and like we have just moved away we've gotten we moved away from like slow living. And I think this is all just ramping up in that direction.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't say it any better. And I think the CBDC is actually exactly that. And they're already starting to bill it as being more convenient for our lives. Yeah. Oddly, though, I feel like the more technology I have in my life, the less time I actually have for the things that I like and I enjoy, which is strange, you know, whether it be my freaking Roomba crapping out or my phone, you know, having to reset that every, you know, six hours or whatever it be from different glitches. And I mean, there's just one thing after another where you end up just spending more time dealing with the upkeep of technology than actually saving time, which was supposed to be kind of the, you know, proposed benefit, I guess. So, um, yeah, I'm right there with you, man. And, uh, it seems to only be escalating and especially, yeah, once we go into, uh, the transhumanism side and people like Whitney Webb and, uh, Gavin, as well Mm claim that that's kind of where all this is going, you know, that this, that's kind of the end game with all this. And at that point, you know, we might as well be detached from our consciousness. We might as well be detached from our, our own intuition, you know, and um, James Corbett actually said something that still resonates in my mind. And I personally feel guilty about it, but he said that the average American spends 11 hours a day looking at screens or on their devices, 11 hours a day. Now, me personally, it's probably more like, uh, 16 to 18, just because I work online I yeah. get up early, you know, I do this, but that's insane. And we already are kind of moving in that direction. You know, we already are becoming subhumans in a sense. So, you know, I mean, yeah. uh, it's a little scary. And, uh, I think this is all the things that George or- Orwell, you know, warned about. Yeah. yeah.
2: Was it, I just want to comment on that real quick. Like, I remember, I think it was Elon Musk's interview with Joe Rogan where he was talking about like how we our AI is already here. You know, we have yeah. this, the, yeah, we're not, we don't have, we're not programmed or inject. We don't have like a, a neural link or technology injected into us, but we have this extension, you know, this cell phone that's so connected to us. And my wife actually, I've talked about this before. She did her dissertation on the interrelational dynamics of touch. So this idea of this concept called the parapersonal space. So it's like, there's this like, I don't know, you can call this like amoeba-like energy around you, that anything that comes into that or anything you come into contact with, your brain maps it as being a part of you. So what do we touch more than anything else? I mean, we're touching our phone, we're touching our devices. And so like, I think most people here can can recognize those moments when you misplace your phone and there's just this like, like talk about anxiety, talk about like, oh my God, what am I gonna do? All the things that are in there, my life, my work, my business, my contacts. And so it is, this. this phone is a part of us. You know, yeah. it's wild.
1: Yeah. Not to mention the blue light factor, you know, and a lot of people are using at night and it's really affecting our sleep patterns. I mean, a lot of the people that I, I chat with online and some of them are younger. I mean, they have totally distorted sleep schedules. And I think it's largely because of this and it's that constant, uh, you know, you're, you're constantly sure, right. trying to, yeah. Want to know what's, you know, somebody's being messaging you or if you have the new notification or it's uh. It's a constant, you know, and I, I think people are having a hard time disassociating themselves with that. I think there really needs to be an intentional separation from that and and, and inconvenience as well and inconvenience at times. Uh, which no I one can really... be
2: bored anymore, man. Like no one can be bored. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like there's always something at every moment to distract you. And I sure. say this as someone who like, yeah, I, t- I do my best to like be out in nature. I live in Topanga Canyon. We moved here. We're surrounded by nature. It helps. But again, man, I'm a product of this. Our our work, our podcast, being on social media. I have the phone. I'm on it hours a day. You yeah. know, so my yeah. perspective is like the world's going to do what the world does.
0: At the end of the day, you have a choice. Right? You know, have the choice to be personally responsible for how you spend your time, how purposefully you, you use these devices. Yeah, sure. just like you didn't get the vaccine, You got the choice not to get the microchip, not to get the CBDC and all the rest of it. And I think with the power of personal responsibility, that's really where we have the power to to stifle whatever's going on. Because the more people that become empowered um, and develop the necessary self esteem to make their own choices, to build their lives in their image according to their values as opposed to society's values, then they're not going to have a grasp on you. Um, you know. So I think personal responsibility is a huge piece of the puzzle. Need, like, especially with the purposeful use of technology, like yes. if you're using technology purposefully, like to build entrepreneurial endeavors, to, to create value, whatever it might be, you're less inclined to want to use it just to distract yourself, just to numb yourself, etc. Because you're on there enough. Exactly. So we're not going to escape this stuff. But how do we utilize it in a purposeful way where it enhances our life? And you don't you don't you don't have to compromise your values just because these technologies exist. It doesn't mean that you have to change who you are as a result. I think.
1: Sure. No, those are great points. And think about over the past couple of years, specifically since the Trump campaign and and the Trump election, how much they've tried to demonize social media as people, you know, and don't get me wrong, there are people who abuse it and there are teenagers who have all types of issues, body dysmorphia. I mean, there are profound effects that are associated to social media and the internet, but at the same time, as you just said, Joel. I mean, that's exactly it. It comes down to the individual and how yeah. they choose to use it. And that kind of goes back to the core tenet of libertarianism as well and so self-ownership, you know. You have to know yourself. You have to be in charge and make decisions thoughtfully, you know. And uh, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. So I agree. Uh, it's all about the application, how we use it. And it can be a tool for good. And I think yeah. our organizations, your podcast your podcast, my organization, you know we've proven that over the years. In fact, I utilized free tools with Facebook, with Twitter, and Tumblr to build a social media empire which, you know, has been taken away from me of course, but during those years that we were thriving and successful, I was able to employ we had 7 writers, we had 3 people on our social media team. So I was actually employing people to do this type of work. Rather than having them work at some shitty job that they hated, you know? So, yeah. yeah, I absolutely agree. And I feel like that's exactly why they're trying to vilify and demonize these tools to the extent that they are, you know, because misinformation is just so dangerous, right? No, not really. But that's what they want you to think.
0: Yeah. Do you know much I'm hearing about like Web3? Like what that is and how far away that is from actually, you know, coming into some kind of mainstream periphery, if that benefits this. Censorship attack on any level? I don't
1: know. Uh, yeah, I don't know a lot about it. Unfortunately, I knew I know that uh, a lot of the new crypto infrastructure is predicated off of Web Web three. So we're seeing things like MetaMask kind of take and use that um, mm-hmm. that formula. But I'm I'm not really much of the tech right. guy. I've, I've always been more of like the social media guy. You know, that's always been my mm-hmm. focus. Um, so I don't know too much about it. But I know it's going to be intertwined very closely with crypto and. Um, all those things—the NFTs, the smart contracts—yeah, you know, it's going to be kind of a push forward, at least for our team. You know, Team True, yeah. Team Liberty. Um, so, I, I do very much think that is another silver lining. And you know, we always have to stay optimistic about this stuff. So, I, I appreciate that you bring that up because I do think that is something that's
0: going to be a favorable asset for us in the future. And this is the thing. There's always people betting on the good side. You know, like it's it's never going to be just a one track mind of where like everything's just going towards this dystopia because there's people like you and me and others who are even further ahead on the path than us who are batting for our team um, and who are creating value in that direction. So I think mm-hmm. as this goes on, we've got to realize nothing can really stop this dystopia from happening, but it doesn't have to touch you to the degree that you think, so, that you, that you think it does. Whoever falls down that path, sure. But I think there's always going to be a choice but I think we really have to begin now, like I mentioned before, just to properly empower ourselves, to begin to make those choices, to learn what we need to learn, to develop self-efficacy, to move ourselves in that direction. Because the reality is, yeah, there's some fucked up shit going on in the world. So we're going to have to have the necessary competence to choose, to shift, to, to evolve in the right direction as things, as things progress. Um, just to close this whole point off.
1: Yeah, no, I agree completely. And this comes back to the self ownership. This comes back to self education, empowering ourselves. Absolutely,
0: this it always absolutely. comes back to collectivism versus individualism. Yeah. versus individualism. At every single level. Like, yeah. what's the what's the mindset of a person who doesn't even think they have ownership of their body? Like, what kind of value? What's the quality of the choices that they're going to make for their own life, for their own survival, if they think that that primordial base property belongs to someone else? You know, it's like, come on.
1: I don't think they understand that philosophy. And I think that's kind of the bottom line there is they just don't understand that part of it. They've never been taught it. They were never taught it in schools. So to a lot of people, especially in the woke crowd, I I see them as being empathetic. I I see them as caring individuals and they want to do good for society, for the world, but they're just being guided in the wrong direction. And they're being used as useful idiots to Mm -hmm. propel these establishment desires and you know what the establishment wants so i think that's kind of what the yeah. problem is
2: Ultimately, yeah, yeah and- it's i was gonna say it's just it's a certain form of, of programming we yes. we say it all the time where you know those in power you know they the architects of control the social engineers you know they co opt your virtue your virtue and then you use it against you like so again a lot of these people that i know that let's say have belief systems or made different choices over the last few years or the last 10 years you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit there and go, look, they're so evil. They're yeah. these horrible people. They're not. They're lovely, lovely people that just uh, have been, their psyches have been hijacked to serve certain agendas. Again, a lot of it's based on using their virtue to support um, agendas uh, and institutions that they know very little about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This, this, yeah. this is like the, the importance of the right philosophy because the philosophy in is going to equal the output. It's going to result into, into the action you put out and like Ayn Rand spoke about this in depth, but even how the the whole concept of selfishness, right? Most people are under this illusion that to to give to themselves, provide for themselves, to care for themselves, then automatically they're in like a a moral contradiction within what society's projecting onto them. So there's this innate fear in general, even to step into that realm. Um, But it's only the human being that's, that's fundamentally in service to themselves. That can fill their own cup. That can actually do good for anyone else in the first place. Absolutely, you have all these people running around with empty cups, doing each other favors out of resentment, obligation, guilt, shame. What's that festering all around you? You know, it's like give to yourself first. Stand on your own two feet. Fill your cup. Then be like, okay, you know, how can I help you out? It's almost the same analogy of putting your own um, oxygen mask on first.
1: Sure. Yeah, and we got. We also got to remember that. People that we're dealing with here are ideological opponents. They're a masterclass in manipula, manipula, excuse me, manipulation, you know, emo, yeah. emotional manipulation yeah. and the appeal to emotion as well. And I feel like whenever I try to engage with a logical, into a logical conversation with people online, I never get back a legitimate argument. It's always fallacies. It's always insults. And so this is kind of what leads me to believe that, yeah, like these people do have good intentions, but they just don't have the ideological ammunition or foundation to really understand their position, you know? So I think that there's a problem there, but I also think that there's a very clear agenda that's being pushed by the ruling class. And I know this, you know, probably sounds like I'm putting my tinfoil hat on and I might be to a certain extent because these are assertions, but... The longer I do this, the more I realize that the mainstream media, the corporate media, they're just here to market narratives for the ruling class. And all this stuff is very intricately plotted on and detailed. And they roll it out in a manner that they know is going to be the most effective. Yeah. A lot of this stuff, the majority of the narratives that cross our social media feeds that we hear on the news. So when you think about it from that context, then yeah... You really do have to be kind of on the defensive when you put your thinking cap on.
0: Yeah, it's it's the marketing arm for psychopathy. That's what the media is.
1: Yeah, perfect. Yep.
0: Let's get into. Um, I know you've done extensive work, obviously, around um, police, the police, and raising awareness to police brutality. Um, can you speak about your involvement with all that?
1: Sure, man. Yeah, God, I didn't even mention police, the police, in my. My opening there—it's a big part of what I do. It's a big part of my passion. I'm—I'm um, I'm also very passionate about peaceful parenting and unschooling, but uh, voluntarism, yeah, and police accountability is—is is really big for me. And that all really started, like I said, during Occupy. People think that you personally have to have some type of negative encounter with law enforcement, police employees, to you know want to get into the accountability world. But like, <laughs> I'm here to tell you, like, I just saw injustice. On my iPad screen, and that's what lit the fire underneath me, and I decided you, that.
0: Before we go too deep, can you remind people what Occupy Wall Street was? It's even it's even vague for me.
1: Oh yeah, sure. Um, so Occupy Wall Street, it, it surfaced around 2011. It was a grassroots movement started in New York, um, kind of around the banking class. Uh, a lot of the issues that were. Um, People were having with the big banks. And of course, that was right off the heels of the 07, 08 financial Mm -hmm. crisis. So um, I think that was more or less kind of what it was focused on. Uh, It didn't, unfortunately, it kind of got co opted. You know, the the demands for it weren't necessarily, again, you know, it wasn't really ideological. It wasn't really, there wasn't a strong foundation there ideologically. So it kind of got co opted. Uh, But yeah, it was. More or less, just kind of a grassroots protest against the banks. So, when I saw that happening at Occupy, it just lit a fuse. And I realized I personally had to get involved to do as much as I could to help hold police accountable and work towards transparency. So, I in 2012 created the organization Police the Police. And uh, we had, like I said, immediately a bunch of success. I believe that was because we were giving more of a libertarian flavored solution and perspective on the police accountability and police violence uh, situation that was going on, while primarily historically, it was more of a left wing movement. So it turns out there was a lot of libertarians and anarchists that were very much uh, in tuned and cared about police accountability. But there was not really any organization or anybody who was promoting that type of information. So we stepped in, we filled that void, and immediately we, we started to kind of blow up. Of course, uh, we worked with Cop Block, who is also uh, a big police accountability organization, or it was, it's not so much anymore. But we kind of uh, joined forces and grew that uh, whole side of things. And since then, man, like we've helped out a bunch of people. We, we've done exclusive stories. Um, it, I feel like that's kind of... In, the most important work that we can be doing right now because at the end of the day like police employees law enforcement are kind of the henchmen like they're the enforcement class for the ruling class so if we could point to them and explain how they're problematic how they have no incentive for accountability for uh, effectiveness uh, to ever improve because ultimately they're a monopoly on force on violence mm-hmm. then i really think that we can be actually moving in the right direction rather than just continuing to protest and demand that, you know, these politicians create some type of incremental reform policies, which never really seem to work.
2: Yeah. There seems to be such a lack of nuance too, in that discussion too, especially with the media, where it's like, you either hate the cops or you, you know, or blue lives matter, you know, you, you back the blue. Yeah. And if you, if you, if you stray off of that, like either side is gonna be like, you're not part of us, you know? Because, I mean, I, I know some cops that are awesome. They're great, sure. you know? And there's sure, sure. there's cops that are fucking assholes. And sure, sure. there's cops that are awesome that don't speak out, which that's a part of the problem, too, because they're part of this institution that has issues.
1: Sure. I, I would say that whole divide was orchestrated intentionally. And I don't have any proof of that. We may never have any proof of that. Mm-hmm. But there was that groundswell around um, the Michael Brown case in 2014 I don't know if you guys remember, but Ferguson yeah. came this yeah, hotbed of police violence and police accountability after the Michael Brown uh, ordeal and trial. And then it kind of ballooned away from that. There was other cities that were starting to have huge protests like Baltimore for Freddie Gray. And there was a bunch of them. So I think by the Trump years, the, the planners, the central planners, the manipulators kind of realized like, hey, we have a situation here. We have an opportunity to divide people. So I again I don't have any proof of that but that's exactly what seems to happen and you're right there isn't a lot of nuance and I think that's why our organization has been successful well until of course Facebook and Twitter took us down and now it's been a bitch trying to get back on our feet but I think that's why we've been successful is because we're kind of dividing that line there you know and we're not here just to say you know it's all black people who are affected by police violence because that's not true but we're not here to also say that it's only white people and black people don't have any issues with police violence, you know, and there's this kind of this whole, you're right, divide between the left and the right. And it, it seems intentional, you know, Mm. intentional as far as I'm concerned. So
2: typical divide and conquer strategies, man, we just see over and over and over and over again. Sure. So what are some of the ways in which, um, I guess the police
0: can be held more accountable?
1: Sure, man. Yeah. Great question. Well, Nobody talks about this. And again, this is what we were always talking about. I feel like this is the important aspect to understand when it comes to law enforcement and why there's such a problem there. Law enforcement is problematic because it's a monopoly, right? Like just straight up. And I'm not saying that we don't need protection and security services in this day and age, in the modern world. We do. And I think most people can agree on that, but we don't need it by a monopoly. So. You just mentioned that you have friends who are cops, and I do too. Don't get me wrong. Like I have, you know, friends who are current law enforcement officers. I have friends who are past law enforcement officers. I don't believe it's the individual that is the problem. I don't think it's an individual cop. Now, the left has that all turned around. You know, they want to point at the individual cop. And they'll say he's racist or whatever. I believe it's the institution itself that is the problem. And ultimately, it boils down to being an economic issue, an economic problem because, how are police funded? Through taxation, right? Well, that apparatus doesn't leave a lot of room for people to take their money elsewhere. And that's ultimately the problem. So they don't have any incentive. Law enforcement has zero incentive to be accountable, to be efficient with our tax dollars, to be effective, and to ever improve. And to my, in my opinion, that's exactly what's wrong. And that's exactly why we've been protesting police for 140 years now, starting back to the, the Haymarket Riot in 1882. And things are still haven't changed Is because we're, we're expecting legislation to change these things that can't be changed. The only way it's ever going to change is if we take their money away from them. And by doing that, we would actually be able to voluntarily, there's that word again, consent to funding uh, a service or a firm, let's say it's a protection and security firm for our communities. We could do that without having the government apparatus involved, which takes away the incentive for all those things I just named. So to me, that's how we move forward. Of course, you'll never hear that from the mainstream media. They're going to keep telling people to, to protest, to vote, to beg their... Their uh, representatives for some type of incremental change; those things haven't worked for years, for decades, for a century, over a century. So we actually have to examine this, grab it, you know, look at it from the foundation, yeah. which is the funding. It's the yeah. funding. If they don't have the funding, they can't continue to do this.
2: Yeah. What do you What do you think it is in a, in an individual that every four years, every two years, they just There's this like hysteria that gets built up like, no, now, now this next person is going to be the one that solves it because, because they said some nice words. No, no, no. Don't worry. In four more years. Like what, what is that? And like, even going back to your, um, the name of your, of your platform, the free thought project, like what makes the person ability to think freely? You know, like, I know there's two separate things, but I'd love to kind of get into that and talk about that.
1: Yeah, the, every four years, I, I really think it's based on the programming that most of us received in our public school indoctrination. You know, and that I mean I can't really think of anything else. We were had to beat it into our heads. They beat it into our heads over and over again that all social ills are fixed by government. You are the government. You have, you know, this apparatus that you could change. You're a part of it. You can participate. So I, I think that that was a very effective propaganda. And it actually worked very, very effectively. So, you know, that, I think that's basically what it comes down to. I think it's that in the cognitive dissidents, People believe, they want to believe, they don't want to think that they don't have any control over their own destiny. They feel like they have to vote for the lesser of two evils. And ultimately, that's, you know, where they, the, the, the extent of their thinking lies, you know, it doesn't go much further than that. So that's where we come in. That's where we, you know on their heads and, and plant the seeds and uh, you know, throw those memes out there that might get them to think like, hey, how am I supposed to vote harder? Can I mm-hmm. magically yeah. vote in the right people? Will I ever magically vote in the right people? Will there ever all be the right people in government to actually make some kind of significant change? You know like no, that, that's not going to happen. It's delusional thinking, you know so uh, and then your, your other question. God, man, I wish I knew. I honestly do. You know, I've been asking myself this question as well. I I think some of us have uh, maybe like a spiritual intuition that something's wrong, Mm -hmm. that things just aren't quite right in society. And therefore, we have to examine and investigate things a little bit further than the average normie would. I mean, that's the only conclusion I could come up to come up with, you know, I mean, obviously, it's all about your your environment, your education, those things are certainly big factors in it. But what separates us from the average person who Yeah, just goes along to get along doesn't question the system got their COVID vaccines gonna vote, you know, for the midterms. I mean, I really couldn't tell you.
2: Yeah, same here, man. It's the question I've asked myself for so long. And I'm so curious, because I look around and I go, Oh, well, what caused that person to to buy into the narrative, what what caused the other person not to buy in it. And it's like, I want to find this common thread, but it feels feels much more more much more yeah. It's much more esoteric. And and again, you bring up this like spiritual intuition and obviously it's not something I can measure and put in a graph, but it's really fascinating to see, you know, and witness. Yeah, it's not black and white at all, man. There's so many degrees to it. There's that factor, but also like the level of toxicity
0: that someone's grown up with, you know, maybe the amount of vaccines they've had, amount of (sighs) fluoride they've consumed you know, the, the the degree of education yeah. they've had, how far they went into institutionalized education.
2: Um, yeah. Trauma. I,
0: th- I think tra- trauma is a big thing.
2: I, 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 think, I, I think people who are traumatized and haven't done the work to like heal their trauma, yes. um, uh, they're the ones that are more likely to kind of get into that trauma bond with these authoritarian institutions. Because all those things that we're mentioning, including trauma, it separates
0: you from having a relationship with yourself.
2: And yes. at the end of the
0: day, that's that's the fundamental foundation of the reasons why you do and act in ways and think in ways which are in service to, to to you valuing yourself.
1: Yeah. And I would maybe even take it a step further. I don't think it's necessarily just the institutions too that have played into this PTSD on a large scale. You know, I would also say it's our parenting techniques. Of, and, of you know, course. I, I mentioned earlier, I don't know how in, into the whole world of peaceful parenting you guys are. But I we did an interview a couple yeah. couple months ago now with Dana Martin, mm. and she is a very eloquent speaker as far as the the differences between the authoritarian parenting paradigm and the partnership parenting paradigm. And I would say that ninety nine point eight percent of the the population are definitely have been programmed into the ther- authoritarian parenting par- paradigm, and that is destructive. And toxic to the very next level. You know, I mean, that's the highest level of toxicity. And of course, people will hear that. And probably people are listening to this right now thinking, oh, he's crazy. Like there needs to be some type of authority structure in your parent and your children's lives. But ultimately, I think that sets the grounds and the basis and the foundation for statism and the religion of statism and getting it's people tyranny. to tyranny in, in tyranny and authoritarianism. So yeah, I think it it starts yeah. actually all the way back to the beginning of our life, the first few formative years, you know, and the way our parents even brought us up. So yes. I mean, yeah, we're, some of us have been luckily able to navigate and work our way outside of that and, and break the trauma. But at the same time, how many people haven't been? I mean, millions,
2: right? Yeah, so many. I mean, the master-slave dynamic does begin then. And um. I- I know someone who's a mentor of ours, Michael, Michael Tazarian, you know, he's gone, he's gotten real deep into, into these subjects too, and talking about how important those first several years of a of a of a child's life are in terms of how they end up, you know, how their character ends up being, you know, as they move forward in life. So yeah, man, there's a, there's a lot of factors, a lot of elements to this for sure.
0: What what is your personal philosophy when it comes to parenting, Jace?
1: I yeah, it's I've always tried to embrace the parent, the peaceful parenting. Mentality, but when I had that conversation with Dana, it kind of pushed me into this whole different understanding that it's not just some topical, uh, momentary solutions that you can apply, you know, in that context. It's actually a whole paradigm in itself with treating your child as as if they're a partner, you know. And I, I know it sounds controversial. It sounds crazy, but you kind of allow them to lead. You know, you give them the space to be the explorer, the scientist to do the things that they need to do to learn and understand that the world they're living in without worrying about how it inconveniences you, about yeah. worrying about how it's going to affect your life and your day. And and trust me, guys, like it isn't easy. I don't know if you're, if you're parents or not, but... I've I got, I got
0: three little girls myself, yeah.
1: It, it really isn't easy to apply, especially being somebody who came from you know, an a abusive household. So I've yeah. completely had to rewire everything. And you really have to stop in every single moment once the tension starts to rise, you know, and, and ask yourself, okay, like what is going to be the best path forward in this situation right now? And it's just that mindfulness, you know, I think that's, this that's something that probably connects this whole entire conversation, no matter, you know, what topic we've been talking about during this interview, it's just mindfulness, right? Just being mindful yeah. of your actions, your behaviors. So that's kind of what I've been shifting towards. I, I've never been abusive to my children, but... Trying to implement more of that partnership parenting paradigm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's definitely something that I'm still learning and still discovering. I don't think that anyone has the fixed answer as to perfectly parent, you know, but 100 percent the foundation, I guess, in my own discoveries has to be, you know, your relationship with the child. If there's if there's proper connection there, then there's less reason to have to play the authority card. Sure. If they if they're connected with you, then generally there's going to be a level of respect. Um, where you don't have to support pull pull that card, but at the same time there has to be certain boundaries. There has sure. to be certain times where you say, "Hey, you know, there, there, there's a wall here and there's consequences." Um, sure. Yeah. To this degree, but you know, it's something that's still yeah. very fluid, uh, which I'm trying to navigate uh, myself. Sure.
2: Yeah, so. and also too, I want to relate this. Sometimes I'm not I'm not a parent, you know, so I can only speak in hypotheticals. But I was you having got chickens a couple, you got dogs, bro. I have chickens and a pup. <laughs> Uh, but I was having this conversation with someone someone before where it's this idea, like even if you think about like capitalism, okay? You know, I think capitalism to a certain degree, especially in the truest sense of the word, is an amazing system that was created. And so instead of fixing the issues that have come up with this system, we just want to scrap it and go to the complete opposite. And instead of going like, okay, well, there's something really amazing about this. How do we then just, um, you know, fine tune it or tweak it? And I think as a parent too, like, we go to this like authoritarianism, we go, let's just, let's just scrap that whole thing and then go to the complete opposite. And then that isn't without challenges. You know, I know sure. I know people like you know, men in my men's circle who, you know, are dealing with severe issues because they tried to be their 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 son's best friend and you know, and this, that, and the other. So I think there is gotta be some some middle point or a fine line where there is communication and boundaries and discipline. I don't mean discipline in this authoritarian way, but just somehow where the person knows, you know, where the boundaries lie. I mean, again, I'm not a parent. So I'm curious when I bring up that idea of like just not flipping to the complete opposite, you know, but maybe integrating the good from both sides. How does that land for you uh, in that regards?
1: No, you guys both bring up wonderful points. And yeah, I've I've kind of had these concerns myself because yeah, I mean, look, like there has to be some guidance, right? Like they need some boundaries. But I've found that the more that you are able to communicate with them, the more you are going to be connected to them, the more that they are going to respect you and respect your wishes just because they want to. They they yeah. it's not because they have to, it's because they want to. True. And the more that you can communicate with them, and I feel like I'm an over-communicator with my son, and he probably hates it, but I'd rather give him more information than he needs than, rather than less, you know? He could do whatever he wants with it. He could let it go in one ear and out the other, which he does a lot of times. But I mean, he's only three, you know? But I'd rather <laughs> give him the full context. <laughs> I'd rather give him the full context of the scenario, the situation, why I feel like it's not a good idea to suggest him to not do it, X, Y, and Z, you know? And that way... He gets yeah. it. I've seen it. I've seen the light bulb go off in his head where he's like, okay, like I'll just go ahead and, you know, listen to you now. And it's a great feeling. And sometimes it takes 10 minutes uh, of c- communication. And I know sometimes people don't have that patience threshold,
0: you know. And I'm with you. I'm with you 100%. I'm man. working on it. It has to be you know? communication. There has to be an explanation. I have to understand yeah. why. Yeah. Like, yeah. why? Like, it's not just because dad said so or because mom said so.
2: Like, that's not going to help anyone. Yeah. And this is where coming back to, you, yourself and your body and your healing, uh, is so important. You know, like I'm, I'm a body worker as well. I'm a somatic practitioner. And it's like doing the individual work to, to, to regulate your nervous system is also huge. And when we talk about everything that's been going on in the world and people who had dysregulated nervous systems are more likely to, to react, more likely to go along with the crowd and that, that sort of thing. So again, I, I just keep bringing it back to you. Like if you change, you know, your environment, the people around you, they're going to feel that, you know, and especially for children, you know, they're, they're not, they're modeling your nervous system. You know, they're not just listening to the words that you say, you know, so you can say all the right words, but if your nervous system is dysregulated and jacked up and stressed out, you know, it's going to have an impact on, on children.
1: Absolutely, man. Yeah, the the children are the future, you know.
2: (laughs) There's a song, but... um, That's going to be our clip. That'll be our reel. The children (laughs) are the future. I don't even know if it goes like that way, but that's how I'm just saying it. Uh,
1: You have to hold hands too. I I think that's part of the requirements. But um, no, it's just so important. And I really feel like that gets overlooked. You know, I really... As much as I love the libertarian, the movement, the liberty movement, the libertarian uh, sphere, it's something that even within libertarianism, people are still advocating to spank your children, you know? And it's like, mm-hmm. so wait, get, let me get this straight. Like you believe in the non-aggression principle, but yeah. you totally discount that and don't apply it to your own family and your own children, you know? So I, I think we have a lot of work to do, at least within, you know, our our movement, as far as that goes. And again, like I try to be consistent. I try to be intellectually consistent. I try to be morally consistent. If I'm not giving my son an opportunity for Himself to have self ownership, then I'm a hypocrite. You know what I mean? And like, yeah, again, like I'm his father. I'm I'm responsible for him until he's you know of a arbitrary legal age or whatever. But at the same time, like he needs to understand that he has self ownership. He's responsible for his own actions. I'm only here to be a guide or a partner, as Daniel would say.
0: Yeah, this is like so often during you know the COVID years. We'll refer to them as that. Um, if it's not too early. But like some people were so gung-ho on like fighting for freedom and fighting against tyranny. But there was just such a deep ignorance within the tyranny within their own homes, within the level of freedom and autonomy within their most personal relationships. And it's almost like everyone was just projecting all of that onto all of society's breaches of freedom and tyranny um, because of the refusal and the pains to actually look at what's going on in their own lives, you know? And parenting is such a huge mirror, um, you know, It's to, to realize the ways in, we've, in which we've been conditioned to um, subdue freedom through our own, our, the ways we were raised as well, I think.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. I don't know if I have much to, to touch on that, but I agree completely.
0: Yeah. Uh, cool, man.
2: Quick question I have for you, man, because obviously I'm really enjoying this conversation. And, you know, you've been at this for a while, like I said earlier. Who have been some of your mentors and thinkers? And we I mean, Joel and I, we love education. We love sharing knowledge, you know, in our platform and the work we do in our coaching program. Like just curious to see the people that have kind of impacted you.
1: Yeah, great question, dude. Um, I would say there was probably some more influence influential people when I was first starting this, you know, because um I was a bit more idealistic, I guess, back then. But uh, Back then, I would say Luke Kradowski. He was a, yeah. a big, big part, especially when he was doing the guerrilla journalism. Man, nothing got me more fired up than when he would corner a politician and just ask them the real questions. You know that the mainstream wasn't asking them. And if anybody's listening to this and they want to make some, you know, quick YouTube dollars, if you have the cojones, I would definitely suggest to do that. If you, if you're smart enough, get a camera, track down where I don't know a certain politicians going to be in your town, and try to corner them. Those videos go mega viral. They get views,
2: real, real quick. Because I want to continue with that, but this seems like a good segue. What are your thoughts on like uh, on Project Veritas and everything they're doing?
1: I think they've been doing great work, man. Yeah, you know, um, their their track record's a little, you know, less than. I, I don't know. They, they don't have a perfect track record. Let's put it that way. Yeah.
0: You know? Unless how you really feel, but you know, the truth, Jason, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, have to, I have what to preface. I have
1: yeah. to have that caveat because they have. <laughs> You know, taking the bait a few times and it's just been a nothing burger. So, you know, they're they're not like WikiLeaks. They're not batting 100 for 100, you know. Uh, But at the same time, look at how much they have brought to the table as far as, you know, these types of uh, guerrilla journalists, type of exposes that they've done with Pfizer and a number of different representatives from different companies. So, that type of stuff is necessary. Now, sometimes the way that they spin it or they angle it is a little questionable as well. You know, I really think again it's trying to uh, preach to that confirmation bias of people on the right. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, mm-hmm. take it with a grain of salt. But I, I do think they've done some important work over the years. Um, mm-hmm. Another person other than Luke who has kind of been exiled from the Liberty community is Adam Kokesh. Are you guys familiar with him no, at no. all? I'm not. No, no. He was big between 2012 to 2016 or so. Uh, He even was like running for president as a libertarian. And he had his own YouTube channel, Adam versus the man for a while, but very smart, very articulate, understands the principles of libertarianism probably better than most people I know. Um, But as far as nowadays, I'm really, I'm really struggling here because I feel like, uh, there's probably two people, two people that I really like feel like they're bulletproof. They're flawless when it comes to their assessment. Uh,
0: you, didn't, you didn't have to, bro. Come
1: on. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are great too. Don't get me wrong. That's yeah, so funny. <laughs>
0: um,
1: James uh, Corbett, who I've already mentioned a handful of yeah. times, you know, yeah. during this interview, he's just so prolific, man. And his level of knowledge, it's kind of like Gavin, you know, although he might be even one step above Gavin just because his net, like uh, his He has a wide variety of topics that he's very knowledgeable about. Um, So yeah, James Corbett and then Tom Woods. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Tom Woods. Um, Kind of an old school libertarian. uh, Definitely like Austrian economics type of thinker. Has a huge podcast. um, Very influential within the libertarian. uh, I wouldn't say party, but kind of like the little L libertarian movement. And uh, now that the Mises Caucus has kind of taken over the Libertarian Party, he's closely affiliated with the, the, the Mises Caucus. So he's kind of having his, his moment in the sun right now. Um, but yeah, he's, uh, he's great as well. Just always like spot on with his assessment. He's also a Harvard grad, a New York Times bestseller. Uh, I'm pretty sure he's a doctor as well. So definitely check out Tom
0: Woods. Cool, He's a, a, good, a good one. Awesome, man. I did have somewhere to go, but it's kind of slipped my mind. Um, what's your What's your dream? Like, what do you What do you What do you want more than anything? More than anything else, in terms of everything that you're doing, you know, and even for your own like personal life, like, what's that? What is that for you?
1: Great question, man. I don't think I've ever gotten that question before. Um, honestly, fellas, like, I really, really, really want to rebuild the Free Thought Project to the point where we were. I want to have yes. at least five writers again. I want to be challenging organizations like Vice as far as the, the the quality of our content. I mean, obviously they have their bias, but yeah. I just mean as far as like they're you know always putting out information. Um, I, I really would love to have some type of video content that's consistent. Um, and I think with that, I, I I could die happy, honestly. You know, and I was there at one point. That's the irony of all this. Like I was broke for years, working jobs that I hated, empowered myself. Uh, built this audience, built this, you know, network of different pages and accounts and uh, you know, colleagues and whatnot. And they took it away from me. You know, they took it away from me and click of a mouse, you know, and not only me, my my co-founder, you know, Matt Agarist and our team, man. We had, you know, I can't take all the credit for the Free Thought Project by any means. We had a fucking kick ass. I don't know if I'm supposed to swear. We had a kick ass yeah, team. Taylor,
2: I curse all the time, bro. I'm we were fucking time. swearing this whole time, bro. <laughs> <laughs> we had
1: an amazing team, dude, and they they took that all from us and it's been very difficult to get back on our feet. We don't have a consistent revenue stream coming in anymore. We've tried numerous ways to to you know, reimplement the revenue stream. So, if I had a dream, it would be to continue doing this full-time. And you know, we have the audience. We have nearly 400,000 followers on Instagram, you know, my amazing. personal account. I have I just rounded 31.3 or something, I don't know. Okay, you know, so like we have the audience, but it's just a matter of getting them motivated to support us, and it's it's proven a lot more challenging than I expected. So uh, we do have some some plans in in motion right now, and hopefully they'll kind of all work out, and Mm -hmm. we'll be able to continue doing this. But
2: is is more of um, is it through donations that you guys kind of um, monetize, or
1: for years it was ad revenue. For years, okay. because we had a big enough following, you know, we had nearly six million fans, so we could bring in the ad revenue to be able to pay our entire team. But uh, these days, it's a little bit of ad revenue. Uh, it's a little bit through donation. Uh, we have a subscription as well. So, yeah, anybody listening to this, if you followed the Free Thought Project, if you've ever found any value from us, please, guys, donate, subscribe. We could really use it. I, I'm not one. I'm not trying to, you know, uh, no, no, worries, I'm not trying to digitally bootleg here, or, but uh.
2: It's all good no. to all to our audience to everyone that's listening. You know what we're about. We know what we love, and sure. obviously Jason's been at it for a long time. So like whatever it is, you know, five dollars, ten dollars, you know, just shoot it over to Jason and his and his and his uh, organization because they're doing great work and they've been doing great work, man. So I really, thank you for that.
0: Yeah, bro. And like I was gonna say, dude, like I'm really sorry that that happened, today. Like that fucking sucks.
1: Thanks, man. Yeah, it's uh it it's been bittersweet, you know. Some doors open from it, and uh, you know, but at the same time it was a life trajectory changer, you know, and I had just bought a house. I, my, my girlfriend just got pregnant, you know, so it was like yeah. I was on that path to having some comfortability and stability in my life. And they, you know, yeah. basically took that from us. And it wouldn't be so bad if we were able just to just kind of rebound quickly, but it, it's just been a, a process yeah. mostly because of what we talked about earlier. There's just been several waves of of different people coming into the Liberty movement. And to be honest, like, they're doing good work. You know, a lot of people in the health freedom movement are doing good work and they deserve the support, you know? So we've kind of gotten placed on the back burner and that's okay. Like I'm not going to give up, you know, I'm never going to be one just to roll over and say, okay, you guys won. Like I'm not going to admit that defeat. So you're just going to have to get used to me. You guys are going to see me around a lot longer and, you know, I'd love to have you guys on our podcast, and, and vice versa. So you know, yeah, if we man. ever do this again, you know, I'd, I'd you be got, glad to. You got to. our
0: support, man, and we would absolutely yeah. love to love to help in any way we can for sure. We'd love to be on your platform too. Um, sure. again, man, just I mentioned at the start, but there's just a the sincerity about you that I really honor and appreciate, and I'm grateful. Thank for. you, brother. Thank yeah. you, thank you. Appreciate
1: that. I think that's what we have. I, I think that's what we have to to show our audience. You know, it's that authenticity repeated over and over again that builds trust.
0: So. Yeah. Cool man. What do you want to leave your audience
1: with? Uh, yeah, if I could just plug a, a little bit here. Um, sure. Of course, the thefreethoughtproject.com. Go there. Uh, we have our podcasts at the top. There's a tab there for our podcasts. Uh, we're doing pretty much once a week, and we've had a lot of great guests, guys. So please check us out. Also, if you want to donate or subscribe, it's there. Uh, otherwise, you could check me out on Twitter at jasonbastler1, uh, Instagram, jason.e.bastler1. Um, and those two are kind of my most prevalent, it's where I post the most. I don't mess with Facebook anymore. I'm tired of them. They have censored me way too many times. Um, I'm also on, you know, Facebook and, hundred other social media platforms, uh, MeWe, Minds, Telegram, uh, God, all of them. Like literally, I think I'm on 16 different social media platforms. So they're not going to stop me. Like I said, they're not going to yeah. tell me that I can't put my information and my opinion out there because, God damn it, yeah. I will either way.
2: Um, I can see, I can see why you're, why you're online 16 to 18 hours a day. You need one hour per, <laughs> one hour per social media platform.
1: <laughs> Something like that, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm going hard, you know, and part of the, part of it's because I'm so passionate about this. I, I want my, Children to grow up in a free society, or at least not have the same restrictions and, you know, the same amount of tyranny that we're de- dealing with. But at the same time, like I, I really am passionate about this work, and I want to rebuild. Like I, I want us to be a successful organization again. I got a taste of that. So
0: awesome, man! Thank you so much for this conversation, brother. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Go support Jason. Thanks for listening to our platform, and we'll see you next time. Peace. What an incredible conversation. Um, Jason definitely is a real one. Just want to remind everyone that's still here, still listening, that we've just launched round four of our group coaching program specifically for truth seekers, Rise Above the Herd. So if you're ready to get on with the real life, develop self-esteem, learn what it means to actually be a self, so you can make decisions that are actually in congruence with what you actually want and value in your life, then go check out Rise Above the Herd at riseabovetheherd.co. Thanks so much for listening again. Smoking mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in a the time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms, cause they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward in evolution to a place and we can share that confusion. Yeah, four fifty BC, I'm sharing tea with